Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and this is a show that takes a deeper look into the stories in the news and a wider view of the political and business environment that we all live in. And on today's show, we're going to take stock of the historic nature of the midterm reshuffle, which is due to take place here next month. We'll be looking back at this government, how it was formed, how it performed and what's likely to happen when the changes are made by Micheál Martin and Leo Varadkar, because they'll be switching places as they try to deal with the triple threat cost of living crisis energy crisis and housing crisis. I'll be joined by three experts who watch politics here in Ireland to give us all their views on what lies ahead for the new administration. And one of the biggest issues facing this government and our country is housing. So finally today I'm going to take an alternative look at the sector by speaking to one of the approved housing bodies. It's called Circle and we'll be hearing from their CEO about how the profile of people needing this type of assistance for accommodation and indeed for house buying has radically changed in recent years. You can get in contact with us as always by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at stockNT. So first up today, we're going to look at the historic switcheroo that's about to take place within government as the Taoiseach's position will change hands on the December the 17th. That changeover is part of a pre-planned agreement for the programme for government and it's a new departure for Irish politics. It's expected that there'll be a little ministerial reshuffle uh, at the same time to examine how this arrangement came about, how the government has performed and hopefully to tell us what's going to happen next. I'm joined now by former Senator Fiona O'Malley, John Downing of the Irish Independent and Stephen O'Brien, former political editor of the Sunday Times. You're all very welcome to Taking Stock. Thank you. Thanks, Mandy. Now, John, I'm going to start off with you, if you don't mind, because it's it's very hard when you think back now to imagine and remember how complex the situation was when this government was formed. Fine Gael had a disastrous election. Fine Fáil didn't do half as well as they or anybody else expected. Sinn Féin's were the only people who kind of made gains that wasn't expected in the election. But can you just remind us of how complicated it was and how long it took for those parties to actually form a government? Yeah, we had an election on the 8th of February 2020 and eventually we struggled out on the 27th of June. So basically, start of February to end of June to to make a government. And eventually, despite all all the toing and throwing, we ended up with a three-party coalition. Uh, We saw history basically sneaking in the side door Because we saw a party structure that we had for the greater part of a century, founded on the Irish Civil War, the two big beasts, Fine Gael versus Fianna Fáil, they sat down and shared power around a cabinet table for the first time. We also had resurgent Green Party, who had a a record high in an election, returning a dozen TDs. So... uh, a bizarre lineup, really, a very European lineup. Um, a, a, a centre right party is Sunagail, uh, a slightly centre left, slightly left in the centre, Fianna Foy, and the Green Party coming, uh, coming together. It's rather looking like something you, you would see in Belgium or Netherlands. Or, or Austria, or one of the other mainland European countries, a definitive move away from the British model. 
yeah, Fiona, it was certainly a much different landscape than uh, the ones we had been used to of old. But when they finally did find that structure and a new programme for government, it took quite a bit of time for people to kind of understand their roles and settle into them. I'm thinking particularly of Leo Varadkar and his transition to the office of Taunashta. How do you think he handled things? Well, I think um, we're going to find that out now in a way. Partly, I do think all his chickens are going to go home, come home to roost because he really behaved pretty appallingly, um, you know, no longer being uh, the Taoiseach. He, it's as if he was, was kind of throwing his pr- the toys around his pram. And he really showed very little loyalty to the new government. And I just wonder, is that going to happen when, when the transition happens again in next month? Yeah, because you really you would question what what well except that I do think Michal Martin is going to honour it because it has been a, a very historic uh, uh, coming together and it has been successful and I mean their figures have more or less maintained and given that everything that this government has been through since it was finally formed and I do think we need to remember just the responsibility that was taken by those three parties um, that formed the government because. There could have been a lot of the the left could have come together to coalesce and to to give Ireland what they're always saying they've always wanted, Mm. a true left government. But they didn't um, step up to the plate. And I think it's to both Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Greens' credit that they did actually step up to the plate. But I mean, I think it's it's good to see that they've remained, their their polling has remained more or less consistent Mm. um, in that time. But... uh, it's it remains to be seen, you know, how Fianna Fáil will operate mm. within this second half of a government that they're no longer in charge. Yeah, um. and given the way that the um, Leo Varadkar did kind of have a sort of a loose arrangement with the the cabinet uh, to an extent uh, that whether he'll be. They'll give him that say the loyalty that he showed. Yeah, Stephen, as Fiona alluded to, there Taoiseach had quite a difficult time when he came in because Leo wasn't exactly coming to terms with his new position. But he had a bad start. He lost a lot of ministers early on. Um, he was dealing with a bad election result. How do you think, though, Michal Martin uh, has performed as Taoiseach? Um, and do you think that he's handled himself well uh, and, and grown into the role, as it were? Yeah, he, he certainly had a slow start and, he, and his start was, was compounded or his problems were compounded by this chaos around him, uh, some of which was of his own making. I mean, the surprising decision to leave Dara Kaliri out of out of uh, a ministerial uh portfolio um, w- took many by surprise and went down like a, a lead balloon within the party but then there were the 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 the, um, the Barry Cowan uh, uh, he had to fire Barry Cowan when he refused to, uh, to address the doll take questions in the doll about this drink driving issue and then uh, Dara Kaliri who replaced Barry Cowan in agriculture uh, had to uh, decided himself to resign when he got embroiled in that um, the golf gates uh, issue down in the the event in the Clifton Hotel during the pandemic when we were moving from one phase of lockdown into another. So chaotic first few months. And I think the Taoiseach did sort of seem slow to come to grips with it all. Uh, Leo Varadkar had uh, surprisingly uh, uh, got this huge bounce in popularity 
after the election because he was the the, the, the pandemic Taoiseach. And, mm. you know, like, like prime ministers all over the Western world, uh, you know, at, at least those who, who acted with resolve and, and with, with purpose, uh, he was rewarded by, you know, huge public popularity uh, and satisfaction for how he handled uh, this event that, that shook us all. So, but, so the, the, the Taoiseach then inherited, uh, stepped in, uh, if you like, after that, maybe that initial glow was beginning to wear off and after people were get, as people were getting fed up with the restrictions of the pandemic um, but I guess he kind of came into his own uh, when the government hit its, uh, its second crisis which was uh, the, the the crisis that hit Europe the, the, the war in Europe, uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine uh, and Michal Martin I think was, was then certainly seen to be you know the statesman in Michal Martin the, the, the man with the sense of history uh, emerged uh, and his very firm and uh, clear and concise uh, iteration of national policy uh, and this uh, solidarity for Ukraine, the open doors for uh, um, Ukraine refugees, uh, that I think uh, w- went down well with the public. Um, uh, and and the you know that interregnum period between the pandemic and the Ukraine crisis, when when the domestic issues of housing and health uh, came back on the period back on the national agenda, that's when we saw him wobble in particular um but uh i guess it, you know they, they they when when we international crisis struck again uh, his ratings uh, picked up noticeably as did those of his party um, he has been you know internal opponents have been sniping away at him as as they did indeed against previous leaders but like certainly like Bertie Ahern before him he's blessed with the disarray and disunity of his opponents within the party and you know people like John McGuinness, Barry Cowan uh, Mark McSherry you know who have huge uh, attributes as as individual politicians they they tend to be um May Finners is, is is not is not a is an ungenerous description and an inaccurate description, but they are sole traders, if you like. Uh, they mm. don't really; they're not a cohesive unit. Uh, and as long as the opposition to Michal Martin uh, it remains incohesive, um, he, I, I would think, in in the certainly between now and December, and in the first few months after uh, the handover of power. I don't see any uh, heave or any any push against him um, uh, enjoying any prospect of success. Okay. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to former Senator Fiona O'Malley, John Downing of the Irish Independent and Stephen O'Brien, who's former political editor of the Sunday Times. Now, listen into this clip. Will any of us ever forget where we were when this happened? So with the fact from midnight tonight, for a two-week period until Easter Sunday, April 12th. Everybody must stay at home in all circumstances. What happens next is up to each and every one of us. So show your support for our healthcare staff. Show your support for everyone who's working in essential services or looking after vulnerable citizens. Show that you care for your families and friends. Stay at home. That was, of course, Leo Varadkar making the announcement to close down Ireland on the 20th of March 2020. We were just talking about this in the office. It all seems like a dream now. Fiona, um, Stephen mentioned earlier that Fine Gael did quite a good job of managing the immediate post-pandemic period and they got quite a, a bolster in opinion polls. But apart from how they managed the pandemic, what else do you think this government might have done well in their term of office? 
little beyond the pandemic in certain ways, isn't there? Because, I mean, like, you know, when they did get everyone, everyone did agree to to, to what was necessary. But in, ter- in terms maybe of, of how they've managed to say the cost of living crisis, do you think that they've dealt with uh, trying to help people through that well? Do you think they have tackled policy issues like health or policy or health or housing? Are there anything that you think that they would point to and say, we did a good job there? Because when you bring up housing, it's still, it's you know, there's a major crisis still there. Um, so nothing obvious for you. John, can I bring you nothing, in? Yeah. Can I bring uh, you in here? Because aside from anything that we might think of that's positive, they haven't been short of scandals either, have they? They've had the Leo leak. They've had Golfgate, Gate. What do you think has been the most damaging thing that's happened to them in terms of crisis that they might have had to deal with? Well, I... I think the most damaging thing, particularly for Fianna Fáil, has been the very slow progress in housing, which has been very disappointing. They've had their problems in health as well, but I think there's such an air of political defeatism surrounding health that uh, people have low expectations. But it is repeatedly and correctly pointed out that when there wasn't a, a shilling in this country, uh, various governments, mainly Fianna Fáil, managed to build an abundance of houses. And I think that is probably the chief disappointment. Mind you, I do think they achieved quite a lot. And I think they are entitled to uh, some kudos, and not least because of COVID. That was considerable. It was completely unprecedented, uh, uncharted and a completely day-on-day learning experience for absolutely everybody across the nation. I think they did well. I think we have to allow for the fact that they were dishing out uh, disappointment and bad news for for a long period. I think they have managed uh, reasonably well in terms of their their initial responses to the energy and cost of living crisis. Mind you, we've yet to see the wind up of that. The economy has uh, performed very well on their watch. And I think there is great credit due to the duo of uh, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath, who have absolutely been the adults in the room. No showboating, no messing about. They just got on with the day to day. And I think we, we are in an enviable position. We're facing very rocky period yet again economically. Uh, but unlike what happened to us in the years 2008 to 2010, we're far better fixed. Uh, with the strong economy, last time when recession hit, we we were particularly vulnerable uh, to difficulties. And at least we have some years of grace uh, facing into a, a great unknown uh, post-Ukraine in, in the midst of the ongoing Ukrainian war. Stephen, as we head into the ad break, uh, can you just give us a whistle-stop tour of the three party leaders? Who do you think has been the most successful, politically speaking, in getting their policies through and managing their respective parties? Um, well, I, I, I'd say a couple of things on that. Uh, and, and before I answer a, a direct answer to the question, I, I, I would say, say the one thing that is often overlooked and, and probably not spoken about very much is that a very strong positive relationship has developed between the three party leaders uh, who sit every week on that um, what's it called the CCC the, the, it's a, the, the government coordinating committee uh, with their with their advisors um, and uh, you know I think that that's often overlooked that when when this government hits 
speed bumps, which it regularly does, that there is a kind of an understanding between the three and the positive level um, level of communication is built up between the three that allows them to maybe withstand uh, some of the, the shocks that, that arise as the government goes on. I'm sure they'll be tested further over the next two years as an election date um, looms. Um, the, uh, I think uh, quietly um, Eamon Ryan has uh, uh, ticked off a, a lot of uh, uh, boxes that the Green Party will have wanted him to tick ticked off. It's often missed that, uh, you know, he alone in government, uh, I know that um, Simon Coveney is the Minister for Foreign Affairs and the Minister for Defence, but the Department of Defence is a very, very small department. Uh, Eamon Ryan is the minister of two huge government departments with two secretaries general and, uh, you know, two separate departmental offices. So he's got a huge portfolio. It's absolutely enormous. Yeah, environment, climate and energy on one side and then uh, transport and um, I've forgotten what the second half of transport is uh, over on the other side. But, you know, a huge, huge body of work. Um, You know, he's got his... uh, Climate action uh, legislation, uh, legislative targets through the the, uh, the carbon tax has withstood any uh, challenge to it, and even from mm. the, in the cost of living crisis, it's nailed down, it's ring fenced for uh, the the various objectives, including retrofitting uh, that that have been ascribed to it. So th- that's been an achievement. Um, I, I think what we're seeing is the experience, Ryan. Er, learned the hard way, perhaps, in government the first time where, uh, you know, they may have been uh, idealistic partners of Fianna Fáil in that government, but, you know, how much delivery did that uh, Green, did the Green Party manage to achieve in that coalition? I think Ryan is very focused on delivery now uh, and quietly uh, is getting much of that done. Yeah, um, for sure. Uh, sure. Uh, Fine Gael have, had, have, have scored some own goals. You mentioned Zapongate, you know, I mean, the, the, this government has had various uh, problems and the housing is... is will be probably what it's ultimately judged on come the next election. But Zapongate last summer, in the summer of 2021, was a completely unforced error uh, where uh, Simon Coveney brought a memo to Cabinet under his arm. And uh, I don't think he was intending to uh, subvert his Cabinet colleagues. He didn't see the the danger in it, but it, the, the proposal to appoint uh, Catherine Zappone to a... To a no, without, um, that was hugely destabilising for an entire summer and... For, uh, for an entire summer, ca- exactly. Caused all sorts Timing of damage. as much as anything yeah, else. To yeah. those relationships, as you mentioned, are very important and cause a huge amount of damage. Right, what we're going to do now is let you digest all of that and we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we'll take a look at the future. Will this changeover simply be a starting gun for the next general election or will the mid-term reshuffle provide a new dynamic for a government that's kind of looking short on new solutions for old problems. That's after the break. Welcome back. We're joined again by former Senator Fiona O'Malley, John Downing of the Irish Independent and Stephen O'Brien, former political editor of the Sunday Times. Before the break, we were discussing the difficulties that the government found themselves in. Will those scars of the scandals have a bearing on what happens next in the reshuffle? John, I'm going to bring you in here about the options that are open to the various leaders. Micheál Martin, we're hearing reports of him seeking everything from the Department of Foreign Affairs to a rumour knocking around that he might be wanting to go to higher education. Um, Maybe he's working towards an exit in 2024. What's your thoughts on what he might do? Well, his case is the most interesting. This this is a great parlour game and people who love politics love to play it, as in sort of fantasy cabinets and what the next reshuffle will look like. Only three people know. Uh, Eamon Eamon Ryan, Micheál Martin and Leo Varadkar. 
And already we've had indications that it's going to be minimal enough because Evan uh, uh, Ryan has basically signaled that uh, what we have, we hold, and we're staying put where we are, three seniors and uh, how many, same again, juniors. Um, similarly, there have been strong signals from Fiona Foyle and that, uh, that he's um, per- going to persist uh, with, uh, with Michael McGrath and Darrell O'Brien in, in their roles. Uh, Michael McGrath is shifting to finance. Uh, Darrell O'Brien staying in housing. You can take it as a safe bet that he will persist with... Uh, M- Norma Foley. Norma Foley, excuse me, in, in education and some others. And similarly then, Leo Varadkar, well... Uh, Pascal Donner, who is going to stay, is going to move across to public finance and stay put. Uh, Heather Humphreys is going to stay put. Simon Coveney is going to stay, stay put. Uh, you know, sometimes you could boil this down and say we might be looking at a Greystones reshuffle here. The two ministers in, uh, from Grace, Greystones, um, Stephen Donnelly of Fianna Foyle, Simon Harris of Fianna Gael, they're most talked about as uh, perhaps sometimes perilously close to the door. There are various arguments. Stephen Donnelly may stay in health or, uh, and just uh, continue to absorb the sort of abuse that one tends to absorb as mm. means for health. Or on the other hand, he may move to another one or he might disappear altogether. John, John, there's a lot of maize in there. You're not exactly tying any colours to the mast. Absolutely. <laughs> it's 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 pretty hard. I'll tell you what, uh, you can definitively say Michal Martin's middle name is uh, caution and conservatism. And I don't believe he's going to do any great goshka, any big changes. And similarly, when you boil it all down, Leo Varadkar. So I think uh, one thing I can tell you, there there's scope for sub- for some small surprises here, but I think it will be minimal and uh yeah, pretty pretty soon after that, barely noticeable. Now, Fiona, I just want to bring you back in here. Uh, you know, we're all a little bit uh, disgusted that the, it all seems to be shaping up to minimal change, and it won't give navel gazers like us much to talk about. But if Leo Vradkar does make limited limited changes um, to that Finnegale team that he has, do you think he'd be left open to the charge that it looks very stale? Some of them eleven years at the cabinet table. Do you think that this m- midterm? reshuffle for him is an opportunity or just an obstacle to get over? I think it is more of an obstacle because that, that's the trouble with the, the, this being the first time that both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, Fianna Gael have coalesced that they don't have the normal scope a government would have to make the changes. Mm. And I think you're right that this is what they need to freshen up for a new election um, uh, you know, and come up with some of the solutions to the big issues like the housing um, question. But because of that it is going to be as minimal as possible, it, you, it is not going to give themselves that, uh, give the government the opportunity to freshen up. And it's true for you. You know, the, the amount of people that have been so long in politics that never get near either a cabinet position or indeed the, the junior man, uh, ministerial ranks. And when, as you say, there's so many, some of them there, not exactly outstanding performers, you know, staying put and you kind of think... You know, no wonder people get a bit restless, let's mm. say, at the, at the lower levels of, of the parliamentary party and kind of keen to make themselves, you know, disrupt 
what mm. might be things are going on and make sure everyone notices and that, notices and, them. And that's exactly the problem oh. because after this there is no scope for people to be promoted so there's an awful lot of disappointed people. Yeah. We're going to take another little clip here now because back in the doll things are getting very testy indeed and battle lines are being drawn up. Take a listen to this. Don't you dare lecture me, okay? I understand the realities of life as well as anybody else in this house and I don't intend to understand it more. But I know a thing or two about people being in difficulty and challenging in their early lives in terms of cost of living and so on, and in terms of backgrounds. That was, of course, Michal Martin in Dáil Éireann, but also the Tánaiste is increasingly painting Fine Gael and Sinn Féin as the main battleground. Stephen, that row in the Dáil I'm, with Pierre Doherty and, and Leo Varadkar, uh, it really did spark a lot of attention at the time. Were you surprised by how severe the tone of the exchanges have become uh, between the government parties and Sinn Féin? <laughs> Not really. We, we, we've we've seen uh, the, we've seen it uh, get quite personal between uh, the Taoiseach and Mary Lou Macdonald on occasion as well. Um, I guess the the uh, we're 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 approaching half time. Uh, we're approaching the business end of uh, this, uh, you know, the, the the election season, if you like. So we're going to have in early twenty four in May twenty four. We have local government and European elections, and then quite possibly, I would say quite probably, in the autumn of 24, uh, we could be running into the general election. They mm. can go as far as the spring of 25, um, but I think it's unlikely that the incumbents will uh, leave themselves with a little wriggle room with, with, with you know, the, it, they could, if they decide that they, the winds were in their favour, they could go as early as the summer of 24, but I think the autumn is more likely, October, November territory. Um, but again, that's crystal ball. It's, it's, it's too far away to, to make any call like that. So no, not not entirely surprised of uh, at the tone that's coming in. Um, I think when we're talking about you know who's going where at halftime and who what swaps are going to be made, I, I think you know a lot of a lot of the certainly within the doll and particularly within Fianna Fáil, people are watching that very intently because it'll not only say you know who's 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 on the way up and who's on the way down in this game of snakes and ladders but it will also give clues as to what Michal Martin intends to do mm. you know it, it, does he go to Department of Foreign Affairs I mean I think there's a great logic to him taking the move to Department of Foreign Affairs um, because he has placed great store on um, he's always had a very close interest in, in Northern Ireland affairs the Shared Island Initiative has been uh, I think a success by his measure uh, I think Leo Varadkar the leader of Fine Gael has been very pleased with how it has uh, panned out and is quite comfortable with it. Uh, and if if the Taoiseach, as he said recently at his uh, at his own party's Ardesh last month, uh, if he wants to retain you know a close involvement in in, in uh, Northern Ireland affairs, the best place to do that. Um, outside of the Department of Antishuk is uh, in the Department of Foreign Affairs. Now, if he does go there, and I think it will be, if he if he wants to, I think it it, it would be hard to, to say no to him. I don't think it, the Tanishta would say no to him. Um, if he does go there, many in the party will see that as a step away from the cut and thrust of daily politics. 
is it a sign that he also was planning to stand aside sometime before the general election? Um, you know, the, the, there's a lot of reading of tea leaves going on. So mm. the, the, the whatever whatever portfolio the Taoiseach uh, seeks for himself will be interesting and will be uh, uh, closely uh, interpreted, perhaps even over-interpreted. Mm. John, I want to ask you a question about a strategic decision that Micheál Martin made way back in March uh, 2020 or in, in the months that um, followed. Strategically speaking, he allowed... Sinn Féin kind of go into opposition and basically uh, paint a picture of a continued uh, confidence and supply arrangement between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. He has done very well as Taoiseach but he has not restored or improved the standing of his own party in the opinion polls. Do you think A, John, that that was a misstep on his part or do you think there was anything else he could have done? I think uh, he had quite deliberately burnt his bridges with Sinn Féin in the course of the election campaign. He, re, uh, he had a wobble on election night though. Uh, was, he had a kind of a wobble on election night. He sort of suggested he might be open to it. Yeah, vaguely. But he had not only closed, in reality, when you look back on the the election campaign, in fact, one of uh, many of his colleagues were quite, were privately bitterly criticising his conduct, his conduct in the election campaign because they believe he actually added, he put wind in the Sinn Féin sails mm. by repeatedly attacking them. To my view, he had not only shut the door against uh, called an option of coalition with Sinn Féin, but he'd actually nailed that door shut. There are many people who believe it's time, that that was the time to uh, drag Sinn Féin into government and uh, to, in a sense, normalise them. They only still only have to be right about everything that's wrong. They don't have to make hard decisions and defend them. And they will continue to have a charmed existence in in popular support as long as they're in that position. Mm. So, I mean, we're in uh, consistently for for 13, 14 months now, more than one in three people in in a whole slew of opinion polls are saying they will vote Sinn Féin next time out. Okay, well, just want a final, final, brief, brief word from all of you. I'm not going to leave without a prediction. Just one little prediction from each of you. John, I'll start with you. What Give us one change you think is going to happen on the 17th. Uh, I think either Simon Harris or Stephen Donnelly uh, will will leave. Perhaps we'll, we'll get the chop. All right. Perhaps both. Stephen? I think they, both leaders, both the two large party leaders are going to be very conservative and not touch their senior ranks but I think they'll try and make up for that by having a more extensive reshuffle of the junior ranks. I hear talk that Frank Fian of Sligo Leitrim, junior minister in the Department of Health with responsibility for the dr- drug strategy might not be reappointed by uh, Leo Varadkar. I don't want to put the kibosh on him. You could see somebody like Neil Richmond, a Fine Gael backbencher, or James Lawless, a Fianna Fáil backbencher, uh, being elevated right. uh, to the junior ranks. Okay. But I think they, they'll be very conservative at senior ranks. Last but not least, Ms O'Malley, what do you Hi. predict? I would say that Micheál Martin will go to Foreign Affairs and soon after become the commissioner, the next commissioner. That would be 
but I see how he goes. Okay, well, we're going to have to leave it there. You're going to hear a lot in the coming weeks about what Mihol Martin and Leo Varadkar should do, but I think it's really helpful to put a context on the record since they've come into office together. So for now, I'd just like to say thank you to all my guests, Fiona O'Malley, Stephen O'Brien, and John Downing. Thank you all for joining us today. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, we have mentioned it already today. Housing is in crisis and we're going to hear from one of Ireland's approved housing bodies about how they work and who they're helping out to get on the property ladder. It might surprise you. Stay tuned. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, in recent weeks, there's been many statistics about housing bandied about by government and many political commentators. Figures and finger pointing have reached epic proportions. So today, we want to take a look at housing from a completely different perspective. And John Hannigan, the CEO of Circle Voluntary Housing Authority and the current chair of the Housing Alliance, joins us now to tell us about his experience in the housing market today. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Mandy. No problem. Delighted to be part of the show. Now, recently you've been writing about the question, have we got a housing crisis? And there's some very interesting views in your article. But before we get into that, can you just tell us about Circle itself, who you are and what you do? Sure. Circle is one of Ireland's larger housing associations. Uh, an approved housing body is the technical term. And we're tasked, we're a not-for-profit organisation, a charity that's tasked with providing housing for people in housing need right across the country. Uh, at the moment, we uh, support about uh, two and a half thousand tenants uh, right around the country. And we have a program to build about 1,500 homes over the next two and a half years. So we're very active in the market. We're very active in terms of building and buying housing. Um, but also, we currently, as I say, currently support about two and a half thousand tenants at this point in time. So even if we didn't provide another house tomorrow, we still have two and a half thousand customers that we, we also need to make sure that we are providing excellent services to. And those customers, what, who are they? What's their profile? Well, that's a really interesting question. Uh, so we have about uh, 66% of our tenants are come from Ireland. They're Irish people. Uh, the other uh, 34% are people from other nationalities that have been living in Ireland for a period of time. A uh, large proportion of them are actually working families, uh, working people. Uh, and I think this is one of the misnomers mm. about social housing that people have, that it's it's all uh, people who are unemployed or people who, who have been out of work for a period of time. Actually, you qualify for social housing if you earn up to €34,000 a year. And if you can imagine, our current national average wage at the moment is just over 34,000. So at least more than 50% of the people in this country at this point in time qualify for social housing. And we, a large proportion of our uh, tenants are actually working people, working families. Um, and they would be people like teachers, people in the nursing profession, uh, some guardie, uh, and people who have what you might call precarious jobs, where they're not earning a huge amount of money, uh, not having a huge amount of hours that they can rely upon, uh, but are on call for whatever needs to be done whenever. Mm. So that's the kind of profile we have. We also do provide housing for uh, people who have coming out of uh, chaotic lives as well, you might say, people who have been rough sleeping, uh, people who may be coming out of addiction. Uh, we also have uh, housing for older per persons. And in fact, we've just launched a new scheme, which is for uh, housing with, we call it housing with support uh, for people who have ha health needs that need to be met and who want to live and stay at home in their community rather than move to a nursing home. Uh, and we're providing that with our partners alone and the HSE. I'm presuming that the profile is, has changed significantly in recent years with those professions coming in in a way maybe that they haven't been before, reflecting the 
the growing difficulty with people who have jobs, who have traditionally expected to, to get on the property ladder, ladder having to, to use your service, which again, I suppose, puts more strain. I just want to talk to you a little bit about the approved housing bodies in Ireland. I was checking today, sure. there's over 450 of them that are, that are operating in Ireland. Who, who regulates them? And is there a sense, just looking at them, that, that you're competing against each other? Or is there some kind of joined up nature to, to how you operate? Yeah, uh, the, the 450 is usually put out there by uh, organisations that really don't understand how the sector works. There are 450 registered approved housing bodies uh, in the country. However, it seems a lot. 80, it is. It's, and it is too many. And I think everybody would agree it's too many. But 85% of them have less than 10 homes. Uh, so they, for example, would have been historical organisations that, uh, for example, in a local parish, maybe the church or a community got together, bought a field and built 10 houses mm. for people in housing need in their local area. They're not active in terms of uh, the work that they're doing in developing new housing. They're very much about just holding the housing that they have and letting it to people who are in housing need. Uh, they are regulated by uh, the regulatory authority that we have with the Approved Housing Body Regulatory Authority, ABRA, uh, and they are a statutory regulation organisation. So they would be regulated by multiple organisations. So, for example, most of them, if not all of them, are charities. Uh, which means they come under the charity regulation and all of them that are registered with uh, the approved housing uh, body regulator will be statutorily regulated by them as well, meeting and you have to meet certain criteria. Uh, of the 450, the reality is there's only about 270 that are actually formally active mm. and that is that they're actually doing active management. But of that number, there's only about 13 to 17, uh, the number varies from year to year, that are actually delivering new housing. Uh, for social housing. Uh, a large proportion of them would be organisations who, for example, uh, provide other services. So if you take, for example, St. Michael's House uh, or St. John of God, they're very large uh, organisations with hundreds of millions of turnover between them, uh, providing support services for people with intellectual disabilities or mental health difficulties. But they're also approved housing bodies. But their approved housing body arms are actually quite small relative to the some of the other organisations. So they are they are active, but they're not active in the housing market per se. Uh, of the 13 to 17, there's only six that are actually really delivering the majority of the housing at this point in time for social housing. So of this, the, the top six, of which were one, uh, and they're members of the Alliance, they provide nearly 93% of all the social housing for approved housing bodies at this point in time. And they're providing, the top six are providing uh, just over 50% of all social housing in the state. Um, we are, uh, we do compete uh, against each other, but we are regulated through both uh, the regulator and also through local authorities as to which schemes we might be uh, working on. So, for example, we have to apply to local authorities for support. Uh, the local authorities won't let us compete directly against each other for, for a number of houses or a piece of land or anything else. Uh, but we are competing in the market with uh, big developers who want to buy up land. Uh, we're competing with uh, other organisations like the private rental sector who are out there to make a profit and to rent properties, uh, usually under the HAP scheme, the Housing Assistance Payment Scheme, um, as opposed to, uh, to the actual private market. So we do compete, but we don't compete with each other to the same extent. Mm, OK, so when you take those numbers down, they're whittled down quite considerably to like six, five are. or six yeah, big players. OK, so That's just it. again, how are you funded then to if you're competing, or so not competing, but if you're dealing with these big developers and stuff to, to mm. try and acquire properties? Um, do you get the money from government? Do you borrow from banks? How, do, how are you funded? 
It's a mix. Uh, so for the capital funding side of the so the building of properties, uh, we tend to uh, do two things. One is we get some subvention from government. We get a loan from government uh, of uh, up to a maximum of 30% of what we're building, uh, the cost of what we're building, that we have to repay over 25 or 30 years at an interest rate. Mm. Uh, and that, that gets paid at the time of the end of the loan effectively so it's a what you might call a soft loan but we have to borrow the other 70 percent from the private market so we borrow from people like aib bank of ireland deutsche bank and uh, nord bank but also from uh, the housing finance agency and in fairness i have to say the housing finance agency is probably the key funder to the sector at this point in time with probably 90 percent of the sector being funded through the housing finance agency which for listeners is effectively a government bank mm. so it's a, a bank that is uh, lending on commercial terms uh, to our sector so uh, we do we do have to make repayments uh, we do have to we are charged an interest rate which is commensurate with what's in the market at the time uh, and which require the same any any of the same conditions that most of the banks would uh, require from an organization and the current interest rate increases are they they impact you as well yeah, we've seen in the last in the last four or five months, we've seen uh, between AIB and Bank of Ireland, we've seen uh, pure market increases of between uh, uh, one and four percent. And with the HFA, we've seen an increase of nearly two and a half percent over the last few months, with the potential for another couple of interest rates over in movements in the next couple of months as well. So we are we're seeing that as a particular impact on the on the whole of the delivery, um, as is the usual cost of living increases that everybody else is experiencing too. Mm. So let's talk about some figures. What did you make of the government's statement about their housing targets for 2022 this this week? Yeah, I mean, the government have been very clear that uh, in the in the statement that's been made that they're going to meet the targets uh, and possibly uh, marginally exceed them. Um, I think at this point in time, that's uh, that's good to hear. Uh, our experience is that it's been very difficult to keep to the targets from a social housing perspective mm. uh, because of the cost of living increases, the interest rate increases, and because developers have taken a little step back uh, because of uncertainty uh, that has uh, existed in the market because from a number factors. So we are struggling to keep to target. We're just about there in terms of the top six uh, organizations. We're we're just about on target. Uh, our concern would be that if we see many more interest rate increases or we see a uh, con- consistent rising of cost of living, that actually that may be difficult to maintain going into the new year. So we're, we're just about there. In terms of the private sector, uh, it's really interesting to hear that the the targets are being met uh, because, again, our experience is that there's there's some lag in terms of the uh, development output. Uh, We know that there's been a significant number of starts, but actually the completions are probably not at the same pace that we would hope at this stage. Um, If we're going to hit the target, it's going to be it's going to be close. Mm. Now, the reality is, I have to say, and I've said this publicly many times and, and everybody in the government understands my point of view on it, the targets are actually light of what they really should be. We should be delivering thirty-five to 40,000 homes a year, uh, each year, uh, to meet the demand that's out there. Um, but we're, we're nowhere near that at this point in time. And the likelihood is that it's going to take a number of years for us to get anywhere near uh, the 35,000 uh, home target that we that we need as a country just to keep up with mm. existing demand, let alone the additional demand that's actually coming now from uh, the refugees that are coming through from Ukraine, for example, or other, others, other nations. And, and we really do need to find a solution that actually works for everybody. 
If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking to John Hannigan, who's CEO of Circle Voluntary Housing Agency, about the housing crisis in Ireland today. Now, that was exactly my next question. What's the optimum number of houses that we should be building? So (laughs) if no, no, it's fine, because if we take what you're saying as correct and government won't uh, be unaware of your views in this regard Mm. and they're far away from the targets um, that you're mentioning. So is it not the case if we're just being realistic that we're actually just heading towards a more European model of renting and really bodies like yours and others should be focusing on improving rental properties and that and government should be helping to improve terms uh, for for renters your targets and what you say we require is so far wide of what government are aiming for it doesn't seem we'd ever get our arms around uh, the numbers yeah it is definitely going to be challenging and and i think the problem with housing is that it's never a quick fix it can't be because literally it takes up to two years to actually build a house in ireland that's at the very quickest level uh typically it can take anything from three to five years to build housing in ireland so we're not looking at a quick fix over the next three to five years it is i have to say housing for all is a good policy is a good plan it gives a direction it gives a sense of what we need to achieve in targets but they're nowhere near where they need to be unfortunately and that's partly due to the economic circumstances it's due to the lack of opportunity uh, we don't have all the resources in place like people to build like the electricians the plumbers uh, to actually deliver at this point in time even if you take housing for all's own figures there's up to 80,000 people required thousand more people required to build the properties to get us to the targets that are in housing mm-hmm. for all on its own. So we have a long way to go to actually achieve that. Now, there are things that can be done and I would agree that, and this is again something I'm, I've been quite outspoken about, we do need a better deal for renters. We do need to create more security for people in the, who are renting. But we also need to level up the field a little bit for those who are involved as landlords. Now, we're not for profit, so we're not impacted by a lot of the tax issues or anything else that other landlords might fit, might uh, be experiencing. But we do need to keep landlords in the sector, uh, the private landlord in the sector, because we're losing them at a, a huge rate. And that's not actually good for the whole of the sector, because that creates an insecurity for the renters as well. So we do need to see changes. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that I understand government have been working on policies and uh, changes that will help uh, renters in the longer term but we need to see them sooner rather than later they need to be implemented to to give that level of security I th- and to be honest I'm a, an advocate as you might expect given the, the role I play uh, for the rental market uh, we have had uh, a huge amount of policy mm-hmm. uh, that is about home ownership and home ownership is, is a good thing. Don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting it's a bad thing. But actually having a really strong rental sector, be it private or uh, uh, voluntary like ourselves, uh, is really important as well. Mm. And if we look at the other European countries, uh, they tend to have a, a, an almost 50-50 balance between the two. We're not there. We're still at about 66-67% home ownership rate. Uh, it's actually gone up slightly in the last few years, uh, despite the fact that we've had significant mic- macroeconomic rules which have kind of dampened the the potential. Uh, but we still need greater levels of both private and public rental uh, within our within our country. Um, I can't see it for a period of time, I have to be honest. John, just finally and very briefly, because we've run out of time, I'm afraid, I mentioned that article you wrote for Olus magazine at the outset mm. where you don't just talk about the opportunities for building, you talk about an attitude towards the housing crisis. Could you yeah. just... Um, Give us a flavour of that and also your sort of your call to action, what you would like to see happening. 
Yeah, look, everybody refers to the current situation as a crisis, and I think it is a crisis. Uh, there's no doubt that each of the current political parties have a view about how they could resolve it over time. And I don't disagree with the factors that people are putting forward, but I think we actually need, this is a crisis, and it's almost like a wartime crisis. We need to be working together, all political parties, like they did for Sláinte Care, Implementation is a different issue for Sláinte Care, but actually getting a policy of Sláinte Care approved across multi-party was really important. We need something similar for housing for all. We need something similar for housing. Uh, No one ideology will actually fix this. There are elements in each of them that I think are really important, really would really work. But I think one of the critical changes we need to make is that we need to where there's an opportunity to create more housing, that that's given priority. And I give you an example. Uh, Recently, I won't name the relevant local authority, but recently one local authority uh, voted down the opportunity to rezone some land to provide social affordable housing in an area where no social affordable housing has been provided for at least 10 years. Mm. And yet up the road, 800 metres up the road from that particular site, they approved a PRS scheme, a private rental scheme, uh, which is for profit. Uh, and which won't deal with the requirements of the sector and uh, of people in housing need for that particular area. We need councillors to be doing both. They're both important, but not to be doing one because it's in a particular area or because it, it might impact on values in a particular area is not a good enough reason not to do it. There is a crisis. We need to see more housing being delivered. We need to see local authorities and councillors voting it for it rather than against it. Okay, Uh, well, I'm sure, John, we'll have you back another day to discuss the Slauncha Care for Housing plan. And it doesn't sound like (laughs) a bad idea to me. That was John Hannigan, the CEO of Circle Voluntary Housing Agency. John, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. If you want to get in contact with us, you can do so at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record and all your Sunday newspapers. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.